0: You will open your Bibles to John 17. I've been teaching that Jesus prayed for himself in the first five verses of John 17. And then in verses 6 through 8 of this great chapter, we saw what we call divine discipleship. The Father had sent the Son to accomplish the work of redemption. The Son acknowledges that he has filled such a task and that he is sending others to continue to preach the good news of Jesus Christ and that's why we called it divine discipleship. We can see that very clearly in verses 6, 7, and 8 of John 17. And then we delved into, in verses 9 to 13, what we call divine intercession. For this is where Jesus begins to actually pray specifically for his apostles. He prays for their spiritual protection, he prays for their sovereign unity, he prays for scriptural fulfillment of all things, and even his own spoken joy, which he prays would be fulfilled in those apostles. And then, last time, we came to verses 14 to 19. Of this great prayer of our Lord and we called it divine sanctification divine sanctification I said to you that there were five principles that Jesus is giving us here in the form of a prayer and we talked about three of those last time and we'll cover the other two this morning but let me remind you of what those first Word. The first one in verse 14 is where Jesus says this John 17, 14. I have given them, that is the apostles, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. If you were taking notes, you heard me say, That in Jesus' prayer of holiness, of sanctification, of being set apart in the world, he prayed that our holiness, according to verse 14, insists our loving what the world hates. It's just a fact. If we love the Lord Jesus Christ with all our hearts, if we love his word, the word of God, if we love the things of God, then the world will hate us. So that if we love what God loves, the world will hate us and what we love. That's what he's saying. And we spent a good amount of time on that. We said that there are, in fact, three categories of that which we should not love about the world the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, 1 John 2 15 to 17. And if we stay away from those things, if they are in our lives in an ever-decreasing sense, then the world will even gain greater hostility of us because they do not love us. They love those things, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. That's what they love. And since we don't love those things, they hate us. And so Jesus is praying for us. He's praying that we, in fact, will love what he loves, and we will hate what he hates. And then we saw a second principle. Holiness includes our shielding from Satan's fiery darts. Look at verses 15 and 16 of John 17. He says further, I do not ask that you take them, the apostles, out of the world, but that you take them out of the evil one's clutches, That's quite literally what he's saying. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but I do ask, Heavenly Father, that you would take them out of the clutches of the evil one. Why? Verse 16. It's because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. All around us in the Christian life is spiritual attack. Ephesians chapter six tells us very clearly that Satan has fiery darts. He wants to tempt us to sin. He wants to debilitate us in the spiritual life. He wants to uh, command us if he thought he could to compromise with the world, to actually love what the world loves and to hate what Jesus loves. And he tempts us and he tries us And he tests us so that our resolve would be to give up on holiness. So we are needing diligent, consistent, persistent prayer. And we have that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He shields us in our holiness from Satan's fiery darts. We saw that last time. We also saw, saw another principle last time, third in our list of five, and it is this: holiness ensures our being sanctified in the truth. Holiness ensures our being sanctified in the truth. And that is so clearly portrayed for us in John 17:17. 17, 17. Notice it with me. Sanctify them in the truth, and now say it with me: Your word is truth. God's own word, the the, the very word that he used to create the world. The Bible says that Jesus Christ as creator, he not only upholds the world by the word of his power, but he created the world by the word or the breath of his mouth. That's an amazing thing to think of, given the complexity, not only of our own planet, but of all the planets of the universe. And our God, so powerful, so commanding, that when he speaks a word, the world comes into existence. And when Jesus says that you and I are sanctified, that's a a big word and we don't use that word Even though it's a great English word, we don't use it much these days, but sanctified, to be sanctified simply means to be holy, to be set apart by God. The idea that I said to you last time was that God takes us and in a peculiar sense, he sets us apart so that you and I could be a watchword. Our very lives, our very presence in the world becomes a watchword to the world so that you and I are God's own possession. He sets us apart for his own unique and peculiar use so that you and I would show the world what holiness truly looks like. And how are we holy? The Bible says we are holy. We are being sanctified in the truth. God's word through Jesus' prayer ensures our holiness, our sanctification in and by and with the truth. That's why 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, Sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. We are not sanctified. We are not created for greater levels of holiness unless... We are sanctified by the truth. There's no shortcut. There's no easy road. There's no alternative answer. It is through, with, and by the truth of the word of God that we are sanctified, that we are made progressively holy. You say, practically, what does that look like? Here it is. You could say it in this phrase. Holiness is none other than a decreasing frequency of sin and an increasing frequency of righteousness. That's what holiness is. It's a, it's a decreasing sense of the sinfulness of my life because of Christ coming into my life, because of the Word of God being at the ready to make me holy, my sinfulness, all of that remaining sin in me, all of that residual from my old life in Adam becomes decreasingly apparent in my life and to those who are looking at my life I have a decreasing frequency of sin in my life and not only that because that's of course just negative but on the positive side I also have an increasing frequency of righteousness. Not merely the right standing that I have because of Christ's cross even though that's glorious as it is. But I also have a progressive holiness, a progressive righteousness. It's not only the imputed righteousness of Christ that I don't possess on my own. That's why I need to be robed in the righteousness of Christ. It is not just that, as wonderful and glorious as the truth is of my righteousness in Christ. But God also, in addition to declaring me righteous, he also makes me righteous wonderful truth of the twin sides of the same coin that we call salvation. One side of that coin, it's the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's what he did on the cross, and I contributed nothing to that. Well, say one thing, my sin. That's why that phrase of yesteryear is so poignant and it should be shouted from the housetops forever and a day. The only thing we bring to salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. That's what we bring to. Sad as that is, that's the truth. And that's one side of the coin. But that's not all that the coin is. You flip the coin of salvation on the other side, and here's what you have. I'm not only imputed righteousness by Christ through what he did on the cross, but he actually also infuses righteousness into me in increasing ways so that I actually become holy. I'm not just declared holy, I'm made holy. You say, well, it seems like a long road for me. Well, yes, it does for me too. And I suspect that one of the reasons why God not only declares us righteous at a moment in time, at a point in time, and then doesn't immediately just catapult us into heaven is because He delights in also making me holy and in that holiness With which it is a long road, I will one day stand before him and he will delight in not only declaring me righteous at the very point of my salvation, but he'll also delight in the journey that he, the Holy Spirit, has taken me on to make me righteous so that when I enter heaven, I've been both declared righteous in Christ and I am made righteous progressively in Christ and the total package is to the glory of our great God the Truth of righteousness. This is the truth of what he's saying here in John seventeen seventeen. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now here's another element. This is here we, how we pick up this morning on the fourth principle of our divine sanctification. Here it is, number four. Holiness influences. Our going into the world to represent Jesus. Holiness influences our going into the world to represent Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. I mean after this glorious truth of Christ saying, Father this is what I'm praying for. This is what I want these disciples, these apostles, these sent ones, this is what I want them to experience. I want you to sanctify them in, with, and by the truth, but not in a vacuum, not in a vacuum. I mean, it could be that if God wanted to, if this was his salvation plan, he could have, from the very moment of our salvation, taken us somewhere on this planet so that we could be all alone and that he could just sort of remake us into a righteous person progressively by his revelation to us directly, but He hasn't chosen to do that. He didn't take us and set us apart for His unique and peculiar use so that we could go in a cave somewhere and get holy. He puts us in an opportunity to become progressively more holy in the midst of fellow believers and the unbelieving world. In other words, there's an opportunity for you and me not to be sanctified in, with, and by the truth in a vacuum, in a cave, in a conclave, somewhere with the rocks and myself. Now what God says is that I have purposed, through even the implication of this very prayer of Jesus, that you shall become holy with fellow believers For the purpose of ultimately representing your Lord Jesus Christ to the world. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 18. Here's our principle. As you sent me. We read it earlier when we read all those passages about the Great Commission. As you sent me into the world. The Father sending the Son into the world, so I have sent them, the apostles, and everybody who will follow them from their apostolic doctrine, their doctrine of the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ, and those who believe that same doctrine, so I have sent them into where? The world. I've not sent them into a cave. I've not sent them into a place where their sanctification happens all by themselves I've sent them into a place called the church the local church and it is within that context as we grow together we are becoming more and more sanctified so that we can then collectively as individuals individual families individual persons we are then sent into the world more progressively sanctified so that we can represent Jesus Christ to the world that's what he means in verse 18 as you sent me into the world so i've sent them into the world yes this is this is sanctification by travel. That's what this is. This is sanctification by our traversing through this world so that you and I could show off what God is doing in making us holy. Now it's his showing off, it's not our showing off. But what he does is that he shows off how he can take a dead, wretched, blind, naked sinner, And redeem him on the spot at a point in time imputing righteousness to him. The righteousness that he doesn't possess on his own. And he receives, rather than condemnation, he receives the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ then, as he has commissioned, commissions them, now that they are righteous in Christ, to become progressively righteous. And they do it in the context of the local church so that when they are ready, ever ready, each week ready to go out again to the world to represent Jesus Christ. Did you realize that every single Sunday of your life is preparation day? It's preparation It's equipping day. In fact, that's why, my friends, we need more equipping. That's why on December 4th, the 1st, Sunday of December, we're going to commence a Sunday evening service at 6 o'clock, so that we can experience some more equipping. That's what we're going to do. And I'm going to do a long-running series, at least initially, on all the one-anothers of the New Testament, so that we can find out who and how we are to operate with each other in these one-anothers, so that we can be better equipped to go into the world. And then, not only that, we are also going to start a Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. Praise and prayer meeting. Because we're going to need a lot of prayer. Now, this is not a guilt trip for anybody who can't make it to all of the church's kaleidoscopic opportunities for ministry. But if you can be there, every Wednesday of our lives, Lord willing, we'll show up. And initially, I'm going to take you through the Psalms so that we can collectively pray the Psalms back to the Lord. And on December 7th at 6:30, we're going to start. I've already preached through nine of the Psalms already. You can see those online. And we're going to start with Psalm 10, and we are going to pray Psalms very practically back to the Lord. I'm going to teach you for at least a few minutes if not longer than a few minutes and we're going to give you the opportunity to pray these Psalms back to the Lord because we need to be ready to represent Jesus Christ in the world here's what we're also going to do if you can't show up on Wednesday nights maybe you can show up on Sunday mornings because we're going to institute an all church and it's not a guilt trip on anybody who can't make it or can't be there because we're doing a lot but we're going to start praying as a church at 8:15 a.m. prior to the start of the morning service, the first service. And by the way, we're also, because we want to suck up every ounce of worship and praise and the teaching of the Word of God that we can, we're going to back up the service from 9 o'clock to 8.45. Because we also think it's important for you to have fellowship. And when you have fellowship, we want that to be rich and real and sweet. Especially for those of you who are first-time guests, who want to get to know you better. So at the end of this Service beginning on December 4th, we're going to have 30 actual minutes from 10:15 to 10:45. We're going to back up the second service to, or, or actually lengthen the service to to 10:45 instead of 10:30, so that we can have an actual 30 minutes of fellowship together in between those services, so that we can get to know each other, so that we can pray with each other, talk with each other, ending the service at noon. Why? Why why do we want to institute these kinds of things? Because we need prayer. We need equipping. We need the opportunity to equip each other. We want to equip each other in children's ministry, in youth ministry, in young adults ministry. We want to equip each other in men's ministry, and women's ministry. We want to equip each other, pray for each other, band together, for each other. Why? Because we are called upon to represent Jesus Christ to the world. And you know that there's a pattern, even, even just from the Gospel of John, there's a pattern of this concept of God being the sender and God sending John the Baptist and then God sending this forerunner of the Messiah to proclaim the Messiah himself, Jesus, and God sends Jesus, and then Jesus sends the apostles, and the apostles send us. You want to see that? Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I want to show you this. This is marvelous truth, my friends. This is an opportunity for us to learn what we are doing in our progressive holiness in the sending process. Look at John chapter 1, verse 6. This is John the Baptist. I'm going to show you three things. John the Baptist, Jesus himself, and ourselves as disciples in the sending process of the Great Commission. John 1, six: There was a man, what? Sent. Sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a, what? A witness. To bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now, he was unique. John the Baptist was unique. There's no question about that. But you and I could actually take this, and we'll go to a couple passages that clearly explain this to us. But in a sense, he becomes the paradigm for you and for me, even as individuals. There was a man, there was a woman, there was a boy, there was a girl, and we are sent from God, whose name was, and then just insert your name there. And what is our purpose in this world? Why did God create us? We came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him, through her. Right? And the collectively so, that all might believe through them. So John the Baptist's unique calling to be sure, but clearly it's paradigmatic for us. Look at John chapter 3, verse 25. Even when those hostile religious leaders came to John, and even when John's own disciples were a bit confused, verse 26, they came to John. They said, "Then, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan, speaking of Jesus to whom you bore witness. Look, He's baptizing, and all are going to Him." In other words, hey, we had a pretty good gig going on, and, and and now the apple cart is being upset. I mean, we were we were preaching the gospel, and you were heralding the forerunner, and we were baptizing disciples, and then. Somebody else, this Jesus fella, he's doing it too. Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. That was John's response, verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been, what? Sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom John's referring to himself. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm not even the bride. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. And, and I stand and I hear him and I rejoice greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I've done my work. I've concluded my ministry. He must increase, but I must what? Increase. Oh, John had the right idea, didn't he? I gotta give way. Messiah has come. Look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10. This is, this is the right concept. This is what John was driving toward. This was the whole perspective of, of his life. John 10 verse 40. Jesus had gone away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And notice this, verse 41. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man, about Jesus, was true. And many believed in him there. Oh, what a testimony. Put that as a epitaph on your gravestone. I just represented the one who comes after me. Why? Because he was before me. He's got the higher rank. And didn't John the Baptist even say, I'm not even worthy to untie the the thongs of sin. I must decrease. He must increase. That's that's John's ministry. That's who he was. That's what he was about. John didn't do any sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of our being sent. John the Baptist did exactly what he was commissioned to do. And so did Jesus. Go back to John chapter 1. You're going to see if you read John's gospel, even if you read it in one setting, you're going to be able to say to yourself, sent, 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 sent. It's all over John's gospel. And it's about John the Baptist, and it's about Jesus. Look at John chapter 1, verse 9. After we heard about John the Baptist, now we're going to talk about the true light. John 1, 9. The true light, referring to Christ, of course, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was sent into the world. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was sent into this world. He was in flesh as a human being. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only God, the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. He was sent, and He made known. He represented His heavenly Father. Look at John chapter 5. This is even more explicit about this sending idea. John chapter 5, verse 19. This is amazing. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. say, well, where's the the sending there? Look at verse 23. He's doing what he's doing and representing the Father so that all may honor the Son. That's what God the Father is doing. Just as they honor the Father, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who what? the sinning. Here's the sending, and it's all over John's gospel. Look at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, Jesus said, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me." Verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has Sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. It's all over John's gospel. Look at chapter 6, verse 29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him, the Father, whom he or believe in Jesus from the Father, whom he, the Father, has sent. Look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Why does Jesus just keep saying, the one who sent me, the one who sent me, the one who sent me? Because he's the one who's been sent. And the one who sent him is the one he desires to glorify. He's making the point, does John the Apostle in writing this the way he does, and capturing Jesus' own words to make the point that God wants to be represented in the world, and in that representation, he has sent John the Baptist, he has sent Jesus Christ, and he has sent us. I wish we had more time to go through all of those. But you, as a study of John's gospel, I want you, I challenge you to read it in one sitting. And when you do, I want you to take a a highlighter, a marker of some kind, a pencil, a pen, and in your Bible, the one that you mark in, I want you to circle every single time the idea of being sent or being revealed or being shown or being manifest is in the gospel of John. It's pervasive. What's the point? What's the point on teaching? We're sinned. John the Baptist was sinned. God had a plan. And he said John the Baptist is the forerunner. And when that plan was executed, when 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 it was accomplished, John the Baptist went off the scene. You say, that sounds so sad. No, he says, my joy is full. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. I just did what I was told. I'm just doing what I was called to do. And Jesus Christ, the same... He accomplished the Father's will because the Father sent Him to accomplish that will. And what was that will? That Jesus Christ would fully, completely, and perfectly, and sinlessly represent God the Father to the world. And you know the same is true of us. The same is true of us. You say, where is it? John 17:18. As I have sent, as I have been sent, so I send you to the world. There it is. It's it's so clear. It's so pervasive. We are being sent into the world. That's what what Jesus is praying about. As you sent me, Father, into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Matthew 28. Here's a commission. I'm going to be with you always, Jesus said. Even after his ascension, he sends the Holy Spirit. He's in them, he's with them, he's by them, he's for them, he's infusing them with grace and power and mercy. And he says, you go make disciples. As you're going, make those disciples. As you're teaching them, as you're baptizing them, I'm with you to the end of the age. I'm sending you now, just as I was sent. Just as John the Baptist was sent. The sending is incredibly important. That's why Mark's gospel." That's why Luke's gospel. That's why John's gospel. That's why the book of Acts. All say, sending, 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 sending. We are on a mission, my friends. It's not a time to sit back and be comfy. This is war. You know, we had a wonderful men's breakfast yesterday morning. Did you know there were 70 men who came? It's incredible. Wants two churches to combine into one to be a force in the world. Why? Because we need each other. We need each other. We can't do this task alone. We've got a commission. We, we have a sending, we have a responsibility. We follow the example of John the Baptist to proclaim the Messiah to, who has come into the world. And as those sent by Jesus, who himself was sent by the Father, we communicate the word of the word by the Spirit from the apostles to us. And we spread the gospel indiscriminately to all of those around us. Because as the Son has arisen from the dead, so we too proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you know what? The world hates We have to band together with each other. We have to interlock interlock arms with each other. Because this task is too great for any one Christian. In fact, it's even too great for any one church. In fact, it's too great for any one country of churches. In fact, it's even too great for any two continents of countries of churches. We need every continent in the world. We need every available servant of God. We need everyone who is sent to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ as come into the world. Are you ready? Are you ready? You say, no, no, I'm not ready. <laughs> Neither am I. Neither am I. I may look like it at times, but I'm really not. I'm not ready. That's why I need every single Sunday of my life working in me. We need prayer. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the word of God. We need to be sanctified in the truth. We need the kind of holiness for which, when the battle is fierce, when the spiritual warfare is at its height, you and I would be shielded from those fiery darts so that we can just continue on with our message. And we're going to take shrapnel, already have, still will, and yet our holiness is impenetrable. Why? Because Jesus Christ is praying for us. Fifth and final, holiness involves the Savior's own sanctification on our behalf. Now, this, my friends, is phenomenal. Holiness involves the Savior's own sanctification, his own set apartness, his own consecration, if you will on our behalf. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, And, in the midst of his prayer, he's praying to the Father, and for their sake, the sake of the apostles, and every believer who would come after the apostles, and for their sake, I consecrate myself. I have set apart myself, Father, because you've set me apart that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Oh, my word. You mean to tell me that Jesus was not only sent from the Father, but he was also set apart by the Father and set himself apart on our behalf, it says? Do you see that? And for their sake? You could translate it, on their behalf. And you know what that kind of language is? That's atonement language. Who perish on their behalf, for their sake, in their stead. I'm set apart. What kind of set apartness is he talking about? The cross. I died for them so that they would be holy. And the vehicle for their holiness is the truth. That's what he says at the end of verse 19. The vehicle by which they become more progressively holy is the truth. That's why we need preaching. That's why we need Bible studies. That's why we need men's groups, women's groups, children's groups, youth groups. That's why we need it all. Because we are progressively sanctified, made holy, set apart by the one who set himself apart, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he does is he sets himself apart at the cross so that you and I could be ultimately set apart through that cross so that we could be progressively ready to go out into the world to represent Jesus Christ. And all of the sanctification, all of the holiness that you and I experience is a result of what Jesus did on that cross. And thank God he did. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. Wow. Does that give you praise in your heart for what Jesus did on Calvary? If you're a believer, if your heart is not welling up within you, that the only way that you and I can be holy is because he is holy. And he was holy, set apart by God, because God himself is holy. That's why the book of Leviticus says, you are to be holy for I am holy. The only way you and I can be holy is because he was holy. And the only way he was holy is because God sent him on the mission. and consecrated himself. Sometimes look up in the book of Hebrews every time that it says about Jesus that he was made perfect by living a sinless life and by dying a sacrificial death so that you and I could be made perfect. I mean, the book of Hebrews, it's all over the place. In fact, I've even written a few verses down. Why don't you write them down? Hebrews 2, 10 and 11. Hebrews 2, 10 and 11. I'll do some of your work for you, all right? Hebrews 2, 10 and 11. Hebrews 5, 7 to 9. Hebrews 5, 7 to 9. Hebrews 7, 26 to 28. Hebrews 7, 26 to 28. Hebrews 10, 10 to 14. Hebrews 10, 10 to 14. Hebrews 12, 14. And in that same chapter, verses 23 and 24. I'll give you a sneak preview. Hebrews 12:14 says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Well, then how can I be holy? How can I be holy on my own? You can't be. That's why Jesus came. That's why he died. That's why he consecrated himself. That's why he set himself apart for holy service. That's why he was holy. And you and I can be holy. And if you're in Christ, then you have holiness before the Lord. If you're not in Christ, you will never see the Lord. Hebrews 13, 12. Meditate on those passages this afternoon. Hebrews 2, 5, 7, 10, 12, and 13. It's amazing. And what the writer to Hebrews is telling us is this profound fact that Jesus Christ, even as the sinless Son of God, became progressively, through his suffering, the very candidate that God had stipulated. Who then died on that cross so that you and I, through his being made perfect, could be ourselves perfect. That's why he's our forerunner. That's why he is our model. That's why he's our example. That's why he is the founder of our salvation. Oh, my dear friends, holiness is a premium in God's sending plan. Are you all. I trust the Father, thank you for the holiness that you have given us both, imputed to us by Christ and infused into us progressively by what you are doing to set us apart by the truth. May we live it. May we love it. May we be the persons that you have created us to be. Father, as we give of our financial resources, as we give of our time, as we show up to these new services, as we get involved in ministry, as we do the things that you have called us to do in here, in this place, in the building that houses the local church called Bethany, May you sanctify us, set us apart, so that we can represent the world for Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. May it be so for your glory and for the praise of our Savior.